Ruben. Hello. Well, hi. Welcome back to our Table Talk podcast here at the CTSC. I'm so delighted to have you with us again today. Uh, and I heard some wonderful news. I got wonderful feedback. I heard that now you are Dr. Ruben Diaz, NP. Yes, and thank you for having me here today. Um, uh, definitely the Doctorate of Nursing Practice. Um, I completed that uh, this summer of 2021. Um, and it's a, a great progress and a, a big deal um, in, in our nurse practitioner community. It helps us look at system-wide issues um, and really participate at the higher levels of care and really go into quality um, and, and other activities um, that impact the bottom line and in turn, you know, our patients and, and patients care, their, the patient's health in general. Well, congratulations, and I know that all of the great things that you've learned, that you're just going to share them with the entire community, and for that, I am so happy. That makes me feel really great, and I'm so very proud to know, know you, because I know the quality of your work is exceptional. Thank you very much. Today, we will be um, talking with uh, people who are in the South Bronx, and we are supporting Not 62. Um, and since the last time we talked today, I just wanted to talk a little bit about persons who have diabetes and the kinds of exercises they can do. Because during COVID, so many people uh, had limited abilities to go to the gym and different places like that. So if a person had diabetes, what would you tell them to do in terms of self-care for exercise? Well, definitely my approach um, for everything and, and everyone is really why are you doing something or why have you been asked to do something? Um, what's in it for you or what is the outcome that you're looking for? So really exercise, it, it does lower blood sugar, um, weight loss if that's your goal, but also it can help maintain weight, um, especially if you lose fat and gain muscle at the same time. Also just general physical overall health from blood glucose control, which I mentioned before, to lowering cholesterol and blood pressure and even mental health. Um, it has been shown that exercise may help with stress, anxiety and mood um, in general. Um, so I would definitely say fitting activity into your daily life is important. Um, starting with small goals, um, five to 10 minutes per day um, with a final goal of about 30 minutes and definitely participating, um, um, anticipating. Um, when do you plan on doing it? Um, how long do you think you're going to do it for? And any barriers, anything you think might come up that would prevent you from exercising um, so you can prepare for it. And keeping track of your activity is important. Whether you how would uh, how would I keep track of how would I keep track of my exercise yeah. if I'm uh, if I'm a person with diabetes so or you can a diabetic? Use, how yeah, would so, I do that? Yeah, so you can use an app um, on your phone, um, or you can use a plain old paper log. Um, I used to use apps, and there have been a lot of security issues around it. Um, I have used my Fitness Pal. Um, I've even used um, 
Calorie King, which integrates food, um, and just um, continuous glucose monitoring. Some people have those and they can input that, you know, they've exercised. Um, I've gone to just paper. I have a calendar book and I write in the calendar book what type of exercise I did for that day and how long. And at least I can see if I did exercise or not, um, down to just being more detailed to what type of exercises and, and for how many minutes. Um, also, um, besides keeping track of it, finding someone to exercise with is also very important or joining a uh, group activity. Um, so I think as far as exercises, it's recommended to do either, to do both aerobic and resistance exercises. Um, the combination is recommended. Um, again, choosing things you like to do and just make sure it's not contraindicated. So if you have any complications, definitely a good idea if you're going to be involved in more strenuous or structured exercise to talk to a provider in case you know, you do have any heart or blood vessel conditions or anything with your nervous system or your eyes or your kidneys or your feet, any orthopedic condition that might be negatively affected by engaging in exercises. Well, you know something, Ruben, you've said so much that I have to just slow down for a minute okay. because, you know, there's a lot of people that I know that can handle paper log, but when it comes to, um, fitness apps and security apps and calorie king apps what is calorie king how do how do does one who has uh, a person with diabetes diabetes how do they find out about all of these apps and um, where where would they go look so um, I mean it could be as simple as Google but we have to be careful not all apps um, are the same or user-friendly or have the security that we need to protect our information. So I use Diabetes Forecast. It's a magazine um, that provides information on apps that are useful for people with diabetes, um, even apps that help with monitoring or your sugar, like MySugar um, or Sugar Buddy. There are different apps that are more comprehensive that's not just dedicated to exercise that can be used um, to track your exercise. Oh, okay. Does My Sugar Buddies come in Spanish as well? Um, there, I believe there is um, one in Spanish. There are a few um, and I, I get that information through the National Association of Hispanic Nurses. Um, and I know there are some New York City based hospitals um, that have um, developed um, information that can help um, the Spanish-speaking uh, patients or people with diabetes um, towards engaging in those lifestyle modification, which include exercise um, activities and also nutrition. Now, for so many people, when it comes to aerobic exercises, anaerobic and aerobic exercises, they uh, and resistance exercises, they understand it, but for people that may not know, what's the difference? How can I tell the difference or how can we share the differences in exercises with someone who may not quite understand the term? Yep, so aerobic exercises, they're walking, bike riding, swimming, um, anything that uses large muscle groups and gets your heart rate up um, and you feel like you're short of breath when you're talking, that's really what I consider to be aerobic exercise. 
Um, resistance exercises are when you use um, machines, elliptical machines, you use free weights, even the resistance bands that um, normally are used at home, and calisthenics, just using the body weight as resistance. Um, for the older adults, um, incorporating flexibility exercises becomes important. That includes stretching or yoga, um, and there's balance. So there's Tai Chi, um, which is done a lot in the local gyms and um, standing on one leg is an example, um, and just balance equipment um, in general. So those are generally the four types of exercises. And really the goal is, like I said before, starting five to 10 minutes per day, especially after a meal is very helpful in decreasing blood sugars or utilizing some of those carbs that were just consumed, but getting up to 150 minutes or more um, per week is really the recommendation, at least in adults and for children and adolescents with diabetes, it's about 60 minutes per day or more of um, exercise. Oh, okay. Um, do, are there groups, are there groups of people who get together or is there any way to find other, like a, a buddy? If you don't have a buddy, is there another uh, way to find um, someone who will exercise with you, who will help you, you know, who'll go through the Tai Chi or flexibility exercises with you? Are there any places that... Yep, just, uh, yeah, so just like I said before, I'm um, on a prior podcast, there is something, at least um, I know my family down in Florida, the older folks, they use um, silver sneakers. It's part of their... Um, Medicare managed insurance and um, they basically go to a participating gym that's local and mm -hmm. I know they do um, Tai Chi, um, chair um, yoga type exercises but also if you have um, what I call just everyday exercising if someone has a pet um, a dog that they can walk that's a companion also if you're still working um, you can have someone, let's say you have lunch at work, um, you can walk with a coworker, a colleague, someone from work um, to exercise. I know a, a coworker of mine who she says her husband, um, when he eats lunch at work outside of the building, um, there is a large um, area to walk and he just takes a walk with a coworker. Um, also, if you're not able to do more structured exercises um, that you can do on your own includes like cleaning your house, um, working in a garden, if, if that's something that you have access to, um, even just taking the stairs, um, parking okay. further away from where you're going to, to take a walk, getting off one stop early on a bus or a train. Um, those are very helpful. Oh, okay. Getting off the train before I need to get off. And at least one stop before, and that's about 10 blocks, at least in New York City. Um, and even just taking the stairs at work instead of the elevator um, is very helpful. Oh, okay. Those sound, those sounds like really, really little small things, but they may not be. Another question that I have for you is when one is preparing to do exercise, is there any special types of shoes that, uh, you know, someone who has uh, diabetes may should purchase or is there special socks or special clothing or anything special that they should wear because um, they have diabetes? Yes, yeah, so 
preparing for exercise. It's really, like I said before, making sure that you speak to your healthcare provider um, if you need a pre-participation health screening type of thing. Um, because if you do have any other conditions that um, may be impacted by starting exercise, it's important to get that checked out first and also just to get advice on to, um, how to safely exercise. So I would say indoors, um, if it's really optimal, if there's extreme heat like there has been these days, um, if it's extremely hot or cold, because even extreme cold can put a stress on your cardiac system. Um, so that's important to then think of transitioning indoors. Also air pollution, um, like we've had from the smoke that's coming over from the West. Um, if the air quality is not that great, um, that's also um, a time to transition to indoor exercise. Even something as simple as, is your neighborhood safe to exercise? And I'm not just talking about crime, I'm talking about the infrastructure. Are the sidewalks safe? Are they cracked? Are they, are they lifted? Um, can you get hurt? Um, so that's really getting your mind around the preparation. Um, also staying hydrated before, during, and after. If you're already exercising and your mouth is dry, your lips are chapped, um, that really means that you weren't well hydrated even before the exercise. Um, as far as what to wear, um, there's no special shoes that unless there's some kind of um, foot or orthopedic condition for someone with diabetes, but any well-fitting socks or shoes work um, shoes, make sure you inspect them inside. Um, make sure there's nothing inside of them. You'll be surprised what you find inside of your shoes. Um, the shoes really should be what we call silica gel or mid-air soles, like um, so they can absorb the shock and reduce the stress on the feet and the joints. Um, as far as socks, um, it's really, um, for some reason, we think of 100% cotton, as really natural, the best, but it's not the best for someone with diabetes to exercise. I always thought, I always heard that 100% cotton was the best. So for people with diabetes, I would say the socks that you want to choose are those that reduce friction, pull moisture away from your feet, protect your feet, prevent blisters. So what we're looking at is polyester, or acrylic or even cotton mixed in with a poly blend. Those are the optimal socks for exercise. And as far as what type of clothes you should wear, um, there's no specific clothing for people with diabetes. I know that with diabetes, especially hyperglycemia, high blood sugar, um, there can be like um, dryness of the skin. Um, but also when we think about special clothing to wear, that's only when we're thinking about adaptive clothing. And what I mean by that is if someone wears an insulin pump, for example, um, there are clothing that have additional pockets for um, the insulin pump or insulin pump supplies. Um, also, if someone has neuropathy to the fingertips, um, which means like loss of sensation, if diabetes, there are other causes, but if diabetes has damaged the nerve endings on the fingertips, there's also instead of buttons, there are shirts that have magnetic snaps that have 
look like you're wearing a shirt with buttons, but they're really magnetic snaps. So that's only necessary when um, there's something that we're trying to compensate for or address. But otherwise, again, moisture wicking clothes is really ideal. Oh, okay. Wow, I'm hearing a lot of very, very interesting things. A lot of things that has really changing the way I think about clothing for someone who has diabetes. Um, I, I'm, I have a question and, and my question is, when um, a person with diabetes sees their primary care provider, it, can the doctor um, give them a prescription to go see the physical therapist? Is that possible? Yes, so a lot of times um, people ask me about physical therapy for diabetes. Um, so the question is, can I get physical therapy simply because I have diabetes? So it is a good idea. Um, I always recommend, you know, there's no harm in asking and getting an evaluation um, baseline. And a physical therapist can really help you to design an exercise program that works for you. Um, and again, it's not necessary to have like a Charcot's foot, um, like a deformity of the foot, of the bones of your feet um, to get physical therapy. Every single state um, in the United States, District of Columbia, the US Virgin Islands even, they allow for an evaluation and some form of treatment without a physician referral. Um, a physician oh, referral. Sorry? I said I didn't realize that they can, you can have an evaluation without a physician referral? Yes, so there is um, a, a caveat to that. So at, at least at my facility where I work, um, a physician referral is needed depending on the insurance coverage. Um, so if a person has GHI, workers' comp, Medicare, Medicaid, or no-fault insurance, or if someone has a hand or a wrist injury specifically, or they're under 18 years old at my facility, we do require a physician referral. But definitely asking and inquiring about it is a great idea. You should definitely request it if you have pain, weakness, peripheral neuropathy. Um, and you're really, as far as in New York State, um, you're allowed um, to see a physical therapist um, via direct access that is without the physician referral for up to 10 sessions for 30 days, whichever comes first um, from the date of the initial examination. So really setting up the expectation um, that physical therapy will describe, will prescribe aerobic and resistance exercises to fit your needs and have some gait and balance training thrown in there. And if necessary, you can also get um, electrical nerve stimulation device applied and even something as basic as identifying how your footwear may be impacting your comfort and safety and prescribe additional tools that can help you in your daily life. Oh, that is great. That is, well, there's a lot of people I think that really will take advantage of that um, information because it's great to have someone design a physical therapy program just for you around your um, needs, around your time constraints, around your physical ability, uh, uh, even around how you think about exercise. I think that's great. 
So I think more people will be taking advantage of that physical therapy uh, designing programs for them after this podcast. Uh, I have a few more questions. Um, are there different foods that are suggested for when people, some people may have type one or type two diabetes. I know you spoke about the types uh, in the last podcast, but for those who may not remember, could you just tell us a little bit more about type one and type two and uh, talk, talk about the food because some people get so confused in the shelves nowadays when you go to uh, the supermarket, they have food for diabetics, they have, you can go bakery and they have special cake for diabetics. They got candy for diabetics. They got all sorts of food that is packaged just for diabetics for people who have diabetes. Um, so is there something we need to understand um, in order to support people who may have type one or type two diabetes? Yes. So again, type one diabetes is autoimmune um, and requires insulin. Type two diabetes um, is more along the lines of insulin resistance and is not autoimmune and is also managed with insulin, but can be managed with oral medications, non-insulin injectables, and also simply exercise or activity and um, meal planning. Um, but it all depends on where you are along the lines of you know, your, your blood glucose control and all of that. As far as food, um, there's no specific uh, food suggestions for one versus the other, um, because either way, we're looking at carbohydrates, um, which affect blood sugar. Um, but neither one of those types of diabetes require a different diet. Um, I will say that gestational diabetes, which I mentioned was the third most common type, um, does require um, more um, education and control, um, which when someone is um, diagnosed with gestational diabetes, they're normally referred to some type of nutrition education. Um, so I like, I like the points you brought up about how confusing the labels are um, in terms of different foods. I always like to point out to people that regardless of diabetes or not, um, once you see something that says low fat, you have to ask yourself, so what is it that was changed in this product to make it taste better? Because once, I mean, fat can kind of be a palatable, um, something that may improve how you perceive the taste of the food. Um, so maybe they added more salt or maybe they added more sugar. So same thing goes for sugar-free items. Um, I've had sugar-free chocolate and um, I would say it still contains fat. So are you looking at the fat content as well? So it has, I'm definitely looking at the overall content of the food, not just one macronutrient, not just one type of, let's say just carbs, um, shouldn't be your focus. Um, also having lots of sugar-free, those sugar alcohols can go undigested through your intestinal system that can increase diarrhea, bloating, gas. So limiting those products is important. And also something that's gluten-free um, is also not carbohydrate-free. Um, so just paying attention and, and trying to learn how to read a food label um, is important. But if you're not down for that, 
which is, it can be overwhelming or it depends on your level of, you know, understanding and really you could benefit from a nutrition consult for someone to help you with that. But the bare bone basics is really using the plate method. And that's when you look at, let's say a typical nine inch plate and you divide your plate in half. Half of it is non-starchy vegetables. A quarter of the plate is your protein and a quarter of your plate is your carbohydrates. And hopefully we're looking for someone to choose healthy carbohydrates and avoiding or reducing sugar, sugary foods, including fruit juices and um, just sweetened drinks like sodas um, and choosing those little to no effect starches, which are non-starchy vegetables, proteins, and fats. Um, and I, I hope I've answered your question in a more roundabout oh, way. You have answered my question, but I know that you've said it before, but what I just want, because I'm sure there are people out in the audience who are listening to, the, to today's table talk, and they may not know what a healthy carb is. Yes. Uh, yes. Sometimes we say things and then we can always say, well, this, the bread is healthy and, uh, you know, my rice is healthy and which it may be. But the question is, what is a healthy carb? Yes. So uh, a healthy carb. So that, that's also a great point you bring up because I have a lot of patients with prediabetes who tell me that their provider told them, by the way, your sugar is, you know, elevated, not enough to start treating with medication or not enough to be called diabetes. Let's say it's pre-diabetes. So I want you to make two changes. I want you to eat healthier and I want you to exercise. And the question becomes, what does that mean? So a lot of um, people go home and don't have that um, support and background. That's where a nutrition, a registered dietitian, nutritionist comes in. Um, but also myself to inform the public, a healthy carb is really whole grain bread, whole grain pasta, brown rice. Um, beans are considered um, a, a healthy carb. Um, starchy vegetables that are healthy like squash, potatoes, corn, and peas, and whole fruit staying away from dried fruit, fruit that's been canned with um, syrup or jams and jellies. So really whole fruit is the best option and also low fat dairy products. So dairy contains natural um, sugar um, and that is really the, the best option, a low fat um, dairy product. But again, um, tailoring it to the patient because if someone has um, celiac um, disease or if someone has irritable bowel syndrome or, you know, diverticulosis, there may be specific type of things they shouldn't um, or should stay away from. Um, I wouldn't say shouldn't consume. Um, and also that can just impact their health. And there are some people that they should not be eating whole grain. They actually have to eat um, non-high fiber items um, based on their specific health conditions. So it's great to have it tailored according to whatever other conditions you may have going on in the background. But in general, those are the healthy carbs. One of the, I have a, one of the things is how can someone who is in the community, how can we find out? Who can we talk to? Um, because, you know, uh, can I, will our primary care provider be able to tell me 
if I have irritable bowel syndrome and maybe I should watch out for certain foods or if I have diverticulosis, who should, who should I talk to about healthy carbs? Who would best be able to answer my questions? Yep, so part of self-care is having a provider. Um, using an emergency room is not having a provider. Um, having someone, you know, urgent care is great when you have an emergency, um, not when you're basically seeking uh, healthcare in general um, to stay healthy. Um, a lot of what happens, at least in the Hispanic community, generalizing um, is that unless something hurts or you have some kind of a symptom, you may not go to the provider um, or, or seek healthcare. So I would say definitely annual visits um, to a provider to do basic um, physical exam, lab work, your eye exams, your, your foot exams. There are basic preventative measures that I feel the general public really can benefit from um, to prevent things from happening to their health. But if someone is already experiencing some kind of um, a stomach, um, intestinal challenges where they just don't feel well or they just can't quite put their finger on what's going on, of course, um, seeking a provider, um, you can work with them to try to identify what underlying issue um, you may have um, that may or may not benefit from changes to your diet. Um, what I don't want someone to do is to start eliminating foods from their diet without having input from an experienced professional, whether it's a registered dietitian, physician, nurse practitioner, physician assistant, whoever it is, um, really should be based on um, the science or based on their particular profile and their needs. Um, so that's part of preventative care. Yeah. Oh, okay. Wow, that was a mouthful. It really was. So one of the things a person with diabetes does not need to do is just start removing things from their diet without consulting with a professional so they'll know how much and when to remove certain foods from the diet? Right, but if someone does, whether diabetes or not, if someone removes particular food or foods from their diet, I would ask myself, if I was that person, what is my objective? Um, what am I trying to achieve by removing these food or food category? And am I achieving my goals? So how do you know that your diet change is working for you besides, let's say, what you would consider feeling better? Um, are there actual parameters, actual lab tests, things that can be done to really solidify and demonstrate that what you did um, actually made an impact. The biggest challenge for me is when a patient has, let's say high cholesterol, which people with diabetes should really know their numbers. Their A1C, their blood pressure, and their cholesterol are the top three. And someone has high cholesterol, they come to me, they don't want to be started on medications for cholesterol, so they engage in dietary changes. So how do I know if your low-fat diet, your exercise plan, what you're doing is working, is the person comes back in three or six months, whatever time, 
we have um, agreed upon and see if based on those changes, um, there was um, success in, in the outcomes. So that's really my approach um, to removing foods or intro even introducing new foods or dietary supplements into your diet. Oh, okay. All right. That's very interesting. Now that's sort of easy to say, but um, what's the best way to get people in the community involved in it? Or, or do you have any, uh, I know they need a, a primary care provider is suggested, um, but is there any tips or any way of encouraging people um, to just get more involved in their healthcare? Or um, do you think clinics set up uh, different programs uh, or make it more accessible to provide care for people with diabetes? Yes, yeah, so um, in, in general, you're absolutely right. The most challenging aspects of care, um, I would say are those behavioral changes. And that is what we consider lifestyle modifications exercise slash activity um, or food. And food is a very touchy subject and so is weight. So not everyone may perceive their weight um, heavy or underweight as a problem. Um, so that may not be the focus of the exercise. It may be to maintain health and look at other parameters and outcomes. Um, as far as food, it, it leads to tradition, it leads to culture, um, it leads to socioeconomics. Um, what access do I have to food according to my zip code? Um, so there are so many variables that are not within the control of any provider. And I feel like the best way to sort of get into the preventative health and access, a lot of times you see health fairs, health screenings. Um, sometimes these are the entry points um, for a person to have some kinds of interaction with um, people that may have knowledge um, and skills to share with the person because your medical appointments may be every three months or every six months. Okay. Um, the question is, what are you doing in between when no one's looking, when the provider's not holding your hand? So finding the How motivation, do... yeah, finding the motivation, motivational, yeah. motivational yeah. interviewing, um, just finding that motivation within that person. Um, I cannot give someone power. Um, I can provide knowledge. I can provide some skills and then help with some problem solving by having a discussion. But ultimately, really, I, I hope to motivate others um, as a provider and that others find motivation to seek care, um, including if they have a family member who they see um, has been impacted negatively by diabetes or succeeding at their diabetes self-care. Um, so I would say health fair, health screenings, um, accessing those mobile um, health insurance um, vans, um, and sometimes there's mobile health 
um, vans going around providing care. There's clinics in the community um, that provide low or no cost care, especially preventative care. So I think those are great ideas um, for your entryway into accessing care. Okay, wow, that was really a, a lot of information because so often there's so many people who really are not able to understand the pathways or the accessibility to primary care or people who are coming from other parts of the world. From what I understand, by 2060, this country will be truly multi, multi, multi-ethnic. And as healthcare providers, I'm sure that uh, pathways are being created now that might be useful in educating and passing all of this information on to our multi-ethnic community because it, it's just a lot. Well, that, that's, where, that's where diversifying the nursing and healthcare workforce in general becomes important because when you have more providers that are mismatched with the population, um, then that's where challenges surface. So it is real that um, we definitely can use providers that share um, these um, cultural congruencies with these um, populations, whether here already or coming in, um, down to community health workers um, that can bridge that gap with um, providers um, in, in general. So um, I, I do see that change is coming. It is slow to happen oftentimes, um, but um, definitely looking at systems and how we can make an impact on the changes in population um, would, would really help with the outcomes um, in, in these multicultural communities. Oh, okay. Uh, one of the things that I have found from, because I've worked in the community at various times in my career, and I noticed that people quite often share their medications. Um, and they'll say, you know what, I have, uh, I have diabetes and I have uh, some insulin. You can have some of mine or I'm taking this tablet or that tablet and you could use mine. Um, is this discussed with the clients or with consumers? Is this discussed with community members, the importance of not sharing their medications? Because I've heard and I've actually seen it happen. Is, there, yeah. is this addressed any place? Um, so I would honestly say that as a provider, it is not the first thing on my mind that the prescription I'm giving to a patient um, will be shared or used by someone else. But it is important, and this is extremely important when it comes to opioids, especially with the crisis that um, is going on in this country. Um, it is illegal um, to share opioid prescription. As far as diabetes medications, um, any medication, no prescribed medication should be shared. And whether or not it's opioid, selling any unused medications really um, is a crime. Um, sharing medications also indirectly drives up the cost of medications in general, at least part of the reason why. Um, so 
when I prescribe something to someone, it's based on me knowing this patient's whole person, um, what I, an I anticipate the side effects will be, what the interaction will be with other medications or non-prescribed um, types of, um, types of um, vitamins or supplements that they're on. Um, there are different dosages with different instructions. Someone might have kidney disease or liver disease that the same medication in one person is not okay for the other. Um, also, if insulin, if I have insulin in my home and someone wants, let's say I'm, I'm sharing insulin with someone, which I should never do, um, how does that other person know how I stored that insulin? Was it frozen before? Now it doesn't work. Um, was it exposed to high heat? Now it doesn't work. Um, you know, what is the safety? Um, if the pen was used, let's say it's an insulin pen and it was used before, even if it's one dose, I can't really tell if an insulin pen has been used once, um, depending on how many, uh, what units of insulin were used. I just can't. And once you use an insulin pen with a needle, there's often flashback or a return of tissue, human material into that pen um, based on the use of that needle. So that's a safety issue. It's a health issue. Um, and someone can even have, you know, an outcome can be hepatitis B, um, for example. Um, not addressing an underlying condition is another issue. So if I'm sharing a medication, oh, my blood sugar is 300. I know someone who has insulin. I'm only on oral medications. Um, let me get to my friend's home and get insulin because I know that'll exactly, bring my blood sugar. Exactly, exactly, right? yeah. So the question is, why is your blood sugar that high? Um, do you have a foot ulcer? Do you have some other infection, some other underlying process that needs to be cared for? as well as your blood sugar. So those are just a few of the reasons why medications in general shouldn't be shared, but also specifically diabetes medications. Well, Ruben, I'm gonna tell you, you've given me so many things to think about and so much information to share with people in the community. So I am just hoping that people listen and if they have additional questions and additional concerns, they'll send them out and send them to you because I think you've explained everything so clearly and clearly and in such a way that it's so easy to understand. So I, I thank you so much for being at the table talk today and sharing this information on um, self-care in terms of exercise, nutrition and medication for those people who have diabetes. So oh, I thank you. And and before we go, I did want to share one more thing because go I was, right ahead. <laughs> because I am very concerned in terms of sharing diabetes medications. So if someone needs services to afford their medications as far as diabetes goes, I do have to say there's a one-time offer for a free short-term supply of insulin from Novo Nordisk that you can access, um, that you definitely should find a long-term solution for affording your insulin. Walmart has insulin programs that are affordable. Um, even a blood glucose meter, there's a rely on meter that's $9. Um, there are manufacturer assistance packets um, from Novo, Lilly and Sanofi. 
Um, there are insulin copay cap laws that have been approved in 18 states and DC. Um, two additional states have copay cap or other affordability legislation on the governor's desk that we need to advocate for, especially as providers. And there are several organizations dedicated to bringing resources to people across the world with diabetes, including Insulin for Life and Marjorie's Fund. Um, there are a few of them. So I just wanted to put that out there. Um, please ask your provider questions, um, bring up your concerns, and really make sure that your um, concerns are addressed. And I really appreciate you having me here today. And I really hope that um, we can have an impact um, on you know, people within, in the community with diabetes or with knowing people with diabetes that can share this information. Thank you again. And I'm just gonna give a shout out to um, hashtag not 62. And I thank all of you for tuning in today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Have a blessed day, everyone. <laughs>